0: In this special episode of the OIS podcast, we have a discussion that took place during the recent OIS at SECO in Atlanta. Summit co-chairman Paul Karpacki set the stage with some staggering figures, which led to an insightful conversation between two ODs and two MDs about collaborative care models and the benefits to both patients and
1: practices. Let's listen in. Let me start by, by, first of all, thank you very much, Emmett. You know, these OAS symposia are just such an incredible opportunity. Uh, It's wonderful having it here at CECO and and in its third year now, and I can't say enough about the team at OAS, the quality they do. So, we've got a a great panel with us today, too, that I think is going to be really going to shed some light on understanding a lot of where the future and the opportunities might be. Um, You know, and from this group, we've got Dr. Tom Chester, he's an optometrist, clinical director at Cleveland Eye Clinic, Elise Kramer. Also in optometry, she's at Miami Contact Lens Institute. Uh, Dr. Bill Trattler is the Director of Cornea. He's an ophthalmologist, Center for Excellence in Eye Care. And uh, Dr. Bill Wiley, an ophthalmologist from Cleveland Eye as well, Cleveland Eye Clinic. So great visionaries. I mean, these are the guys who, even in the ophthalmology programs, are up on the stage. And, and with them now is, of course, Tom and Elise, Dr. Chester and Kramer. So I'm glad to have this panel. And I'm going to do it the same way. I just wanted to introduce from here while I was bringing them up. And I'm going to sit down with them, too. And hopefully one of these, there we go, we're, we're going to take you through some neat areas. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for, for making the time. I know you're all busy. It says a lot to be here uh, for this major optometric meeting and, and, and compliments to all four of you. Uh, so first thing I want to get into is the whole area of cataracts um, and looking at some of the numbers. And you may vary, the numbers we see might vary. But I've heard, I've heard that there's 76 million baby boomers that still need cataract surgery. Um, there's no new ophthalmologists that have graduated in about the last 20 years. It's still about 431 coming out every year. If you look at f- full-time equivalents, um seen estimates everywhere from 16,000 ophthalmologists needed where you don't have 16,000 who even do cataract surgery. What's the future as you see it of, of cataract surgery? Are these numbers seem plausible to you um, and how would we address 76 million baby boomers?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I think um, collaborative care is key. You know, in the past, let's say 10, 15 years ago, I think it was sort of an option and maybe a unique business model that certain practices were using um, and uh, sort of a small boutique area. But now, you know, in going forward, I think it truly is key. I think without collaborative care, we're not going to be able to serve our patients. And so. Um, either internal co-management or external co-management. One way or the other, I think optometry and ophthalmology are are, are now we have to uh, work together to uh, serve our patients. I just don't think the traditional model of an ophthalmologist seeing their patient every pre-op or seeing them for primary care for years on end and then doing cataract surgery, I just don't think that's gonna work to to serve this this patient base.
3: I I think the other challenge is, at least right now, Most of the patients I'm seeing come in to me are not ready for cataract surgery. They come in, they have cataracts, but they're not ready for surgery. So I see them talking about all the options, but I say, wait, you have dry eye, MGD, or something else. I have to treat their other conditions first and eventually get cataract surgery. I wish it was just they came in, you know, you're great for surgery, you're having surgery next week. But it's really a long process. And I think, again, collaborative care, working together uh, as a team is really the key uh, for being successful.
1: That makes sense, Tom. Yeah, I, I think hearing from
0: very progressive ophthalmologists, I think that that's fantastic to hear that. Um, those progressive optometrists have been saying that for years. Um, and I think to, to kind of have that, that marry up together, I, I think 20 years ago, it was that we were the outliers, you know, the, the progressive ODMD practices. And uh, we were outliers. We were maybe had arrows thrown at us, you know, so to speak. Um, but now I think out of necessity, you know, in order to provide good patient care, I think, you know, as Bill mentioned, I think we're gonna have to do that.
4: Yeah, and I I think this is the future for sure. Um, I think that, you know, the more uh, we can collaborate together and the more patients we can see collectively as as we co-manage together, as they are just echoing what they're saying, I
1: agree, definitely. What brings up the other area, you know, 15% decline in reimbursement, I don't need to tell, you know, you, Bill, and, and, and Bill, that very often. I, we've all seen the effects that's already having. Uh, obviously, one may, way that, that, you know, I, you as ophthalmologists can certainly make that up is in the premium category. But what's interesting is premium IOLs, and they've continued to get better, uh, but the growth has not. There's still only 6 to 7%, 8% in one study that are looking at some of these premium technologies. Yet, if you look at the financially, there was a study by Sharif Mandavi that showed about 24% have the money, disposable income to have it. Uh, so it's not a financial thing. I mean, it is for the others, but it's still a big number compared to where we're at. Is, is that just lack of education in optometry um, on these premium IOLs? Is it just uh, a fear? I mean, I've had patients sent into my clinic, too, that have said, you just tell them not to do a multifocal on your eye. That's what the doctor, the patient had told me. And sure, there were times where that, you have that one case or whatever, but why, are we, uh, why, why is there such a disparity there and what could we do in terms of education? I, I think there's two things. Um, I think there is a
0: cost issue, but I think it's not necessarily the patient. I think it's maybe the provider. I, I think that we look at it as a cost of a procedure as opposed to a perceived value, uh, maybe a lifestyle change. Um, you know, patients are, are willing to spend $5,000 on a cruise which lasts a week, but, or you know, 28 days for some people. Uh, but by a mask, <laughs> not a fun cruise. But 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 in this case, you know, we're talking about changing their vision for the rest of their life, and and maybe not even to that degree. So I, I think perceived value is something that we need to address, as opposed to think of it purely from a cost standpoint. But I do also think that there's an education side. Years ago, we spent a lot of time educating optometry about the co-management of refractive cases, refractive surgery, laser surgery, LASIK, you know, PRK, all smile. Well, not smile now. But we educated patients for years about that, or providers. But now, how much are we really educating about the refractive cataract patients?
1: That's a good point. Success was there too in the refractive surgery days because of optometry driving it. You think of TLC models and all of that. So why did industry and everybody get away from educating optometry or was it our profession? Elise?
4: Well, I I think we're so afraid, again, to talk about money with our patients and I think that's our non-entrepreneur side, you know, our more medical side is that we're kind of like just we don't feel comfortable talking about it, whereas the patients are probably willing to pay. I mean, like you said, it's a one-time thing, it's a one-time surgery, it's their eyes. Um, And I think that the education needs to start in the optometry office. We're the ones maybe finding the cataract first, the patient first, and we're the ones referring. And so if we already get them Telling them, you know, this is the highest technology available. This is the best out there. This is what you should get. Then they already walk into their ophthalmology office with that in mind.
3: That's a great point. And I think what I'm still seeing is that these uh, more advanced IOLs are wonderful, but the success rate still is not always 100%. And part of that still goes back to dry eye. How many times do we have a patient? We did a, they, the patients paid extra for presbyopic lens. They expect to see great a month later. They're really disappointed in the results. And I've seen them. I've treated their dry eye, but the dry eye gets worse with all the preservatives they're using on their eye after surgery, or for whatever reason, it's worse. The dryness that makes their vision worse, and they're disappointed. Um, and that that can be challenging. Not, I'm happy to ch- keep treating their dry eye, but not all p- practitioners feel comfortable and they get frustrated by the fact that this isn't just a one and done home run type of technology. good point.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, the technology in the space, you know, diagnostics therapeutics around pre and post-op dry eye treating uh, dry eye. We didn't really have great uh, technology even to diagnose dryness or treat it in the past. And now, you know, every patient um, that's coming through the clinic, you know, Tom's, you know, integrated some new dry eye uh, questionnaires that are really trying to identify it on the front end, treat it, and then increase that chance for success. So I think the perioperative care is really increased, but also, The technology of the lenses have come a long way. I look back to the original, you know, array lens that we were using 20 years ago and it was really problematic to the restore, to the techness. Um, Now we've got, you know, two great products. I think uh, the Panoptix has been fantastic with a trifocal that really delivers on that, uh, the vision that the patient's looking for. Also the light adjustable lens is a great technology. We may get into it a little bit more. I think it's a great...
1: Now would be a good time. I mean, you're you're thinking about, you know, this is now the future might be this um, adaptability, the fact that you could, you know, treat a patient after you do the surgery, whether it's, um, you know, Olympia, Olymp- which has uh, ophthalmics, that has the, the, I- the PCA, the IOL, the artificial IOL they're working on where you may interchange exchange lenses in the future, or, as you said, site where you can do an adjustable lens modification after surgery. Will that make a difference for optometry, and how? Yeah, I mean, I think um,
2: the adjustable lens is a great way uh place for collaboration you know tom and i have been collaborating with this uh we've been doing the studies going back about four years and what's great about the uh, the, the, the adjustable iol is you the patient gets to experience what the vision is going to be like before they lock it in so we'll start with maybe a monovision, one eye distance one eye near if the patient likes that great we'll lock that in if they don't like that we can adjust and not only adjust you know Monovision or not, but what type of monovision do they want intermediate or up close, or you know how close do they want it? And um, you know having that ability to fine-tune it to the patient is a great option. and I think you know optometry is very, you know used to that working with, Contact lens is adjusting, you know, either a multifocal contact or monovision vision contact. You've got the skill set and the mindset to work with a patient, and um, I think it's a great opportunity. There's also the newest version of the adjustable lens has the ability to add on extended depth of focus or a presbyopic solution on top of that lens. So you can start with monovision vision if it's not quite near enough. You can add on an extended depth of focus and you can maybe trial it first with a contact and, and show them. So anyways, I think it's a great place where optometry is now going to be pulled further in into the perioperative care uh, in that um, you know, premium lens segment. So
3: I've been really happy. We just started with the light adjustable lens as well at our center. And now we have a solution for patients that have really tough situations, keratoconus patients, patients with previous Radial keratotomy, where it was very difficult for patients to end up on target after cataract surgery, now we have a great solution, but it takes time and collaboration because they need multiple postoperative visits. We have to keep refracting them, figuring out what they like. And for RK patients, it could take a couple of months until they get to their final, uh, final refraction. So working together is really key here.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And do you see that being a shared co management fee more so because of the fact that uh, there is more time allotted to optometry? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we could have <clears throat> to it is. The model.
2: Yeah, no I, I think um there's definitely yes Tom can you know say there's some heavy lifting in that in that perioperative care it's like more or less two or three LASIK evals as you're working through those adjustments. You want to speak?
0: Yeah, I, I think with regard to collaborative care, I, I think the concept shouldn't necessarily... I guess the big fear is that it's a pay-for-referral, but right. but I think what we really need to look at is pay-for-service. You yeah. know, the, the provider that's performing the service is being paid for that service, and so if there's perioperative care on the front end, whether it's managing the ocular surface as Bill mentioned, or, or postoperatively fine-tuning the contact lens refraction, you know, to, to demonstrate monovision or multifocality, things like that, then that provider is actually being compensated for their time, chair time, et cetera. So that's where the, the, the collaboration is going to come from, um, on the financial side, because they're, they're being paid for the work that they're doing.
1: Bill, you mentioned Keratoconus, and Elise may have you comment on this as well. Uh, you know, obviously corneal cross-linking you know new advances taking place there it'll continue to advance how's that handled in a collaborative care approach right now Um, or is there an opportunity around that
4: yeah so um, a lot of patients uh, come to me I've specialized in in scleral lenses and contact lenses in general and in keratoconus so I see keratoconus all day basically and I refer all of them for cross-linking and the reason for that is because we know that um, the the nature of the condition is to progress and so even though I can improve the vision all my patients with keratoconus PMD um, post LASIK you know the ones with ectasia are are educated about progression and they're referred for that, for for cross-linking consultations. So even though I can can make the vision really, really good with scleral lens or another type of specialty lens, uh, the condition will probably progress. And so that's where um, the the co-management comes in. And so I know um, that after the patient is referred and seen by a corneal specialist who performs cross-linking, that they have the best of both worlds because they have the vision improvement that I can provide and they have the halt in progression that the ophthalmologist can provide, the cornea specialist. And I
3: know Lisa made such good points there. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings is what does crosslinking really do for patients with keratoconus? It does, it does more than just halt progression. We typically see improvement in corneal shape. And with some patients, that can actually look back to normal. I just presented a case last week where my patient, three years after crosslinking, has a completely normal-looking cornea, while three, year, three years previously they had obvious keratoconus. You get this improvement in corneal shape and improvement in vision. But for most patients with keratoconus, I, we can perform cross-linking, but they're not going to see any better right away. It's a long process. And having an expert uh, like you know, Elise and other experts makes such a difference for these patients. They can now function, drive, and work. Uh, scar lenses have been game-changing for, for these patients.
4: So it's, it really is a combination, you know, the cross-linking and specialty lenses together.
1: It's a nice collaboration. as well said. So a couple of, I have five minutes for two other sections. Uh, one is macular, the whole area of retinal disease, but in particular, macular degeneration. a good presentation there on... Dark adaptation, obviously very exciting. Uh, more technologies coming in that obviously are much more into the optometric space. I don't see any of my retina specialists looking to that by any means. I also, my retina specialists always say things like, I don't wanna see a basic patient. Uh, you know, I wanna see only the stuff I've gotta inject or, or surgically take care of. Uh, and again, you guys aren't, you know, you work in practices that have that there, but do you see collaborative care opportunities in other spaces besides cataracts, such as in the world of AMD?
2: Tom, Bill. Yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah, I think um, just like all the other specialties, I think more and more we're going to see the ophthalmologist being in the OR and uh, just to take care of that volume of patients. So, you know, the, the key is, you know, there's so much work to be done. That you know, any way we can collaborate on patient care, so macular degeneration, uh, diabetes, glaucoma. There's so much primary care that goes into those fields that uh, the surgeons are going to lean on uh, optometry to uh, to to guide those patients in those you know uh, before surgery or after surgery, you know, um, and uh, monitoring you know the the. the Disease progression. So, you know, I, I see for sure. Uh, you know, in our practice, we have dry eye specialists, we have glaucoma uh, optometry specialists, we have um, low vision specialists. Yeah, uh, you know, we have glaucoma specialists, optometrists. You know, I can see right now we don't have that uh, retina uh, optometric specialist, but I could see that for sure working with. Um, you know, uh, retina hand-in-hand hand and, you know, you know, you know, collaborating on, on those uh, patients' care. Yeah,
1: and adapt technology really, you know, which was featured earlier, really takes these technologies and puts them in primary care optometry as opposed to just low vision specialists. Just back Please. to
4: what Bill was saying earlier about dry eye, any type of procedure you do on the eye, whether it's cataract surgery, retina surgery, injections, all of those are going to temporarily increase inflammation on the ocular surface. And if these patients already have dry eye, but they're, let's say, asymptomatic, a lot of them might blame their symptoms on the procedure after it um, when it could have been treated beforehand. And so I think that's an excellent opportunity for collaboration as well.
1: So where does dry eye come in then in that ram? As I say, a patient who sent in from an independent private practice optometrist, he sends the patient in, you di- diagnose enough dry eye that you can't figure out your IOL calculations. What's your next steps? You call the doctors? You even- don't embarrass the patient. Don't embarrass the doctor. I, I
3: mean, I think at this point what I'm doing, and, and you know, again, I'm working with my local
1: optometrist, but... And to I'm, be fair, optometry is picking up on dry eye. Well, they are. Right, state, no, they're but, definitely,
3: you know, and yeah. I think there's also barriers. I mean, there's so many great new medications. We have Sequa, you know, Zydra, but there's a lot of difficulty prescribing them sometimes. So even if they want to prescribe, if we want to or anybody wants to prescribe them, you know, there's all these prior authorizations that can block doctors from prescribing these medications, so it can be difficult, but um, when I identify patients, I'm put, gonna put them on a dry therapy and bring them back a month later to do one more set of readings. That's really my strategy.
1: That's fair, and then you kind of communicate between the two. Uh, let, really kind of jumping around a little bit, I liked your idea of collaborative care, and you, you see a lot of these new technologies coming out by Matterprost, SR, obviously we have mixed procedures with, with Hydrus and, and others that are, that are newer, um, and, And more coming down the pipeline, Glaucose, and others have that. Where's the collaborative care opportunity that you see in that space? And is it something you're already starting to work with your um, optometric community and colleagues in, in developing?
0: I think the the MIGS procedures offer a, a tremendous opportunity. Gone are the days of having to worry about like a TRAB and a shunt and, and the co-management aspect of that. And, and those are pretty intense procedures. I, I think now with the, the MIGS, you know, incorporating in with the cataract surgery, not much is really that different. And so, you know, there, there's a little bit of an increase, probably the biggest challenge at that point is kind of titrating off of medications, which happens, you know, six to eight weeks afterwards, but, but really post-operative, you're still seeing the same patient, you know, one week, one day one, one week, one month. You're still worried about elevated pressure. You're still, you know, burping a wound if you need to. So the same things that you would be doing with cataract surgery, you're doing with, uh, you know, mixed procedures, with the exception of perhaps uh, gyneoscopy, which you need to do, you know, once, um, you know, post-operative. But other than that, I don't think that it really adds a lot of
3: Difficulties. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I just added MIGS into my practice armamentarium this past year and hasn't changed at all. I've been able to still collaborate with all my referring optometrists. There's no difference. They've been following and we've been working together. And as you said, the key issue is when to stop the medications. That's the hard part. Is the pressure low enough? Can they stop a, pressure, uh, stop a medication?
1: Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, I've never interviewed an ophthalmologist, like cataract surgeons like yourselves, where I'd said, you know, or heard the answer, would you rather do surgery or medical eye care, dry eye, macular degeneration? I've never heard any of you ever say anything but surgery. what 's it going to take between ophthalmology and optometry for that to kind of become the realm because there are as we talked about bill patients uh, ophthalmologists who still hang on to the dry eye even though they, they don 't have the capacity and can 't really get into it and optometrists who still want to do more medical but aren 't doing it quite to the level we, we need for for the future what, what are the solutions as we in our last four minutes here
2: yeah I think um, I think ophthalmologists just have to realize the amount of patients that are out there that need surgery I, and, and I've, i 've a lot of it boils down to, what do you like doing? There are ophthalmologists that love dry eye, and so they'll, they'll stay in that space. But a lot of ophthalmologists will say, you know what, I'd rather be in surgery. And if that's the case, you can start working your schedules and saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to schedule a dry eye patient. That's gonna go to the dry eye specialist, Dr. Chester, or whoever that might be in the practice. And I have this theory, you know, you know every time you know, an ophthalmologist you know, going into the future sees a dry eye patient, there's a patient out there that's going blind from cataract surgery, you know, from cataract. So we've got to stay, you know, you know we've got to stay in the OR. There's a lot of opportunity for uh, for ophthalmologists to be in the OR. And I think there's a ton of oppor- opportunity for uh, uh, optometry to step up in those areas like dry, dry eye, you know, glaucoma, retina, all those things. So uh, it's a perfect, perfect storm for these opportunities.
3: Right. And I also think there's more solutions for dry eye that... Um, you know, I think there's going to be more excitement around dry eyes. So I think that's going to really help, too, getting doctors who maybe weren't interested in dry eye in the past, um, ODs that were focused for perhaps maybe less on medical. There's so much, so much excitement around this. It can really make such a big difference. The impact, patients are so happy afterwards. That's, that's, what, makes patient, that's what makes doctors happy. I think that will bring more ODs into uh, managing more dry eye, I think.
4: And also having more events like this where we have innovative ophthalmologists and optometrists at the same event that can learn um, from people who do this on a daily basis, who co-manage, collaborate on a daily basis, just spread the word, you know.
1: And then from your standpoint, so we've got a minute, and Tom, I'll have you have to do the last word here. So we had a good presentation here at Lentex, maybe a, a new future you know, approach to, to contact lenses. We haven't had anything like that in a long time. And obviously you do much more specialty contact lenses is, is more your focus, at least. But um, is there a role in, in educating our profession around all of that as well, and then focusing on the... kind of the the more difficult fits is that kind of approach because that is a little bit of collaborative care in of itself
4: right so you know I collaborate with I don't just collaborate with ophthalmologists I also collaborate with other optometrists and that's you know a little bit difficult because optometrists are we all learn the same thing so some think you know I can do this Um, but the reality is there's if you don't do this type of work every single day then the patient might be better off going to someone who does. And so that's where, you know, I, I, I educate optometrists all the time and I, I want, you know, them to learn all, about all the new technology. But the reality is, unless you do this type of thing every single day, then um, the patient might be better off with someone like that.
1: Yeah, you have to focus on that.
0: Yeah, to to piggyback on something that Whitney said earlier, I I think you have to have a passion. And and I think from an optometric standpoint, you know, it's one thing to say you want to be more medical and you want to practice more medically. But really, with just for today example, like all the things that are coming down the pipeline, like you really need to stay out in front, you need to validate that credibility and and look out there as far as what's coming and and just kind of be more of an innovator um, in the sense of optometric, you know, uh, practice. Um, so that you can see those patients medically. Because if, if you're still practicing, you know, I think Doug made the comment that, you know, about uh, being archaic 10 years ago. If, if we're still practicing as optometrists the way we did 10 years ago, then yeah, that's, that's old school, that's archaic, and that's not necessarily the most up to date medical model. And I think we need to, you know, continue our education, uh, push forward, you know, Go to meetings like this, as Elise said, um, and and stay at the forefront of that innovation so that way we can participate in the medical model as well.
1: Great. Well, I certainly want to thank this panel of experts. That was exactly what we were looking for today. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful insights, really incredible opportunities. Just shows how much need there still is from industry. I know we have a lot of industry here in terms of education to, uh, you know, major educational uh, initiatives such as CECO that have been doing this for years and, or decades and the impact they can have and just an entirely other area of opportunity where collaborative care does exist and where the medical opportunities for optometry become more paramount uh, for the future. I think you guys covered it beautifully. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Paul. <laughs> We hope this episode gave you a broader perspective on collaborative care models. If you missed this year's OIS at SECO, be sure to join us next February in Atlanta for the third annual Ophthalmic Innovation Summit at SECO. Stay tuned for more great episodes.